1: UK's leading Greek telecathetic supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever you need, Malbian Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art 17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malbian Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix.
0: Hello there, sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr Neil Buttery and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of the delicious legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers!
1: Leaving Great Rome for Aricia, a modestine received me. The rhetorician Heliodorus was with me, most learned of Greeks. To Forum Apai, then crammed with bargemen and stingy innkeepers. We took this lazily, in two days, though keener travelers than us take only one. The Appian's easier taken slow. Here, because of the lousy water, my stomach declares war on me, and I wait impatiently while the others dine. Nights already beginning to shroud the earth in shadow, and sprinkle the heavens with stars. On straight to Beneventum where our busy host nearly burned the inn, turning lean thrushes over the fire. As Vulcan's fumes dispersed through the ancient kitchen, darting flames licked right up the roof of overhead. You saw scared servants and famished guests snatch food, and everyone tried to extinguish the roaring blaze. From that point on, Apulia begins to reveal her familiar hills to me, scorched by Sirocco. From here, we rushed on in a cart, Twenty-four miles to spend the night in a little town I can't fit in the first. Though here's a clue. They sell what's commonly free. There, water. But the bread's the best by far. So wise travelers carry a load on the shoulders for later. These are the world of Horace, or Quintus Horatius Flaccus, a leading Roman lyric poet in the time of uh, Octavian And this is from the poem The Satires. And paints a rather interesting picture of uh, the urban um, world of um, ancient Rome. With the inns, the taverns and uh, the traveling between uh, Rome and the different uh, towns of the Italian peninsula. Hello. This is the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Welcome back to another archaeogastronomical adventure. I'm your host, Thomas Dinas, and today we'll travel back to 2,000 years ago to the ancient Roman world. I've realized that I've done um, so many episodes about uh, ancient uh, food, ancient Mediterranean food, both Greece and Rome. But I've realized I haven't delved into the everyday foods of um, the citizens of uh, the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, and um, mainly I focused in um, recipes of uh, the rich and the luxurious Romans, which is kind of understandable since that's where we get most of our information from, and our sources talk about the foods that uh, the, the rich patricians and um, the knights and the emperors and the senators and what have you. Of course, the reality for most people in most of the empire or the republic earlier on it was quite different. And um, thinking about that, I was also thinking about the highly urbanized uh, life and lifestyle of uh, the Romans. Most of the Roman citizens and most of the Roman activity, commercial or otherwise, was happening in uh, urban centers across the Mediterranean and further afield. So how did these people um, survive on a day-to-day basis? What was their food and how the empire fed them? After all, feeding 50 to 75 million people, which was the population of uh, the Roman Empire at its height, was no mean feat. And this is the center, the epicenter of uh, what we call the Mediterranean diet, of course. We have uh, olive oil and olives, grapes, wine, broad beans, peas, lentils, cheese, onions, and of course dates and and almonds and pine nuts, cumin, coriander, sesame, mint. All of this stuff were used um, and were eaten on a daily basis. The book of Apicius gives us a little glimpse of... uh, the daily food um, items that some people ate. Um, but of course, it was the people who could afford slaves as cooks or hire cooks to create for them some exotic dishes as such. So, Romanites, businessmen, and traders of all kinds, landowners, skilled craftsmen, and so on. When we think of um, the Roman Empire, aside from Rome, which had a population of Anything between 250 thousand to a million people in it in its height, and that was um basically unsurpassed until the 19th century London. never any other city in Europe had such a high population um there were other big urban centers across the Italian peninsula firstly but also the empire as a whole so if you think if you think places like Neapolis modern day Nap- Napoli. Capua, Crotoni, Messini, Syracuse, um, Mediolano, Monter Milano. All these places were big urban centers. But even places like Pompeii and Herculaneum, with population between 15,000 people or so, these places were highly urbanized, with people living in close quarter with each other, and uh, slaves and traders and so on all having to be fed constantly and on the go. So, let's go and explore um, some ancient Roman urban foods, kitchen and the technology behind these um, elements. The day of the average uh, Roman begins at dawn. That was without coffee, so... I guess they had to get ready and dressed at um, considerable speed to go and do their jobs. Uh, there was not a such thing as um, washing and changing clothes as that was happening later on at the baths. So the breakfast usually to scratch meal, the barest of minimum, I guess some water and a piece of bread. As I said, there was no coffee uh, back then. Perhaps, for some people, there was cold leftovers from the night before. And generally, obviously, time is at the premium when one needs to do all the labour of the day and the social activities with the daylight. And, of course, um, trying to avoid the heat of the afternoon if it's uh, summertime. Uh, but here it's worth mentioning that the length of the Roman hour fluctuated according to the seasons. But usually, the day's labour did not extend beyond seven hours in the summer and probably around six in the winter. Obviously all those people who were rich enough to, to have private income from the land and they didn't have to work as much, the whole afternoons were free. Going towards midday, lunch for the non-labouring classes was, um, as with breakfast, a very quick meal of leftovers, cheese, fruit, bread, generally items and um, ingredients that involve the minimum of cooking. The whole uh, fine dining as such experience was confined to the evening meal. This was called the Senna. We can assume that the labouring classes who needed uh, to keep their energy levels up during the working day may well have consumed considerably greater volume of food uh, at midday. So the proletariat uh, of Rome, the traders, the craftsmen, the skilled labourers, retailers of all kinds, as well as the unskilled labouring masses, lived, um, as we said in this urban sprawl, in insula, which were flats constructed of wood above a stone and brick-built houses, and the businesses on the ground floor. Uh, generally, these flats were three or four um, floors high, and the higher you lived, the poorer you were, and the less likely you would be to have access to cooking facilities, of course. Let's not forget that uh, wood catches fire quite easily, so having stoves or stuff like this back in the day, especially back in the day, was considerably dangerous. As well as very expensive, of course. So what was uh, popular, what was um, happening, was street food. Or more precisely, fast food. That was the common thing uh, in the diet of most working class people back then. We can imagine laborers walking through the narrow cobbled streets of uh, Roman urban centers with... um, Hundreds of different smells wafting through the air and um, tingling the nostrils of hungry people. So they would buy things such as um, pasties uh, made with with an oil-based pastry filled with uh, pulses or some uh, roughly minced meat, meatballs. That was another very popular street food. Any kind of offal as well as blood sausages, white sausages cooked with pulses, and simple um, patinae, which is um, the ancient Roman equivalent of our scrambled eggs or omelette or the Roman frittata of today. These um, omelettes were filled with any amount of meat, fish or vegetables that was available to the different trader, of course, to the different cook and um, the different stall. So there was all these potential lunch uh, items available from the street vendors. And this, of course, you could also take home as well. And that was um, the lunch experience of uh, the everyday Roman. As the day moves towards the time uh, for dinner, the more leisure classes, uh, those now free from labour, headed to the baths. It was very important to have a bath. Women generally had been um, in their ablutions at midday. Wealthy men had private bathhouses, of course, in their own homes, or exclusive clubs which w- they could intermingle and socialise with each other. The laboring classes had access to large-scale public baths, of course. There were plenty of them. Plenty of bath complexes around. In Rome, for example, you had the Bath of Caracalla, or the Diocletian ones, where thousands could engage in the same uh, basic um, cleaning and hygiene routine. This routine was uh, exercise, socialize, bathe, get a massage, change your tunic, possibly save and get a haircut, and then attempt to get a dinner invitation. If you didn't, already have one. Occasionally there was also snacking or small delicacies and ultimately on your way home wander to a lavish or more humble dinner. Attached to the baths sometimes were restaurants and bars and the party could easily spend the whole evening there. There is a bilingual phrasebook called Daily Conversation for those who want to learn Latin and Greek or Greek to Latin and Latin to Greek. So the imaginary speaker is heading a party of friends and... Um, they're going for an evening of enjoyment in um, in a tavern. In the book, then it tells us about um, what to order, how, how can you order for a, a wide variety of starters and main courses. And it talks about, for starters, give us beetroot and all good. Add some fish sauce to that. Give us radishes and a knife and some lettuce and cucumber with vinegar and fish sauce dressing. Bring us a trotter, a black pudding and a sour womb. We'll all have white bread. The sauce wants more oil in it. Scale the pleatshards before you put them on the table. We'll have pork shoulder and ham and some mustard. Isn't the fish grilled yet? Now then, some slices of venison. Wild boar. Chicken. Hare. Give everybody a portion of cabbage. Slice the boiled meat. Now serve the drinks. We've all had a drink. Bring the turtle doves and the pheasant. Bring the adder and some alec. Let's eat. It's just right. Give us the roast-sucking pig. That's very hot. You'd better carve it. Bring honey in a jug. Bring a fatted goose and some pickles. Take round some water to rinse people's hands. Bring us yogurt, if you have any, with honey and some halva. Cut it into slices and we can share it out. That's a good meal. Give the waiters and the servants something to eat and drink. And also the cook, because he has served as well. Come on, let's go out for a walk. From this phrase book, we can see what could have been ordered in an ancient Roman restaurant, which is very fascinating, don't you think? So as we said, the Senna was the main meal, the dinner, and the Senna itself was a, a very formal meal with a set number of courses, usually three. But the number of individual dishes within each course was almost, one could say, limitless. So the meal always started with a drink, which was either a honeyed wine, mulsum or a condintum. Mulsum was a mixture of wine and honey rather than mead and a condintum, as we said before, was a spiced wine generally using pepper, sometimes also dates and saffron. Um, in ancient Rome there was a phrase from eggs to nuts, which was the phrase for uh, eating all these different dishes from, from starter to dessert. Eggs typically formed part of the gustatio, the first course, along with numerous small appetizers to, to stimulate the palate. A banquet menu recorded by Macrobius lists among many things for the hors d'oeuvres, oyster patina, as we said, them, omelet, oyster omelet, fish patina, and shaw's under patina, which suggests that the eggs served at the beginning of the meal could be quite elaborate, not just boiled eggs or just fried eggs or whatever. You could have all these uh, different dishes. Salad, olives, bread, tuna, meatballs, which they were called the sitia, shellfish of all kinds with dipping sauces, uh, were all fair game for uh, a gustatio course. Then, we have the first tables, mensae primae, because uh, the tables were brought in, already laid, which comprised... The impressive main courses. These, of course, were roasted joints of meat and poultry, whole stuffed piglet, lamb, or kid gold, whole baked fish, more patinae, minutals, which are the stews, eels, hare, and the list is endless, basically. Yeah, there's an endless list of more elaborate and simple main course dishes. The best way to imagine a Roman banquet is to think it perhaps a little bit like a like a Chinese meal perhaps, that there's a vast array of dishes served in bowls and platters and the guests uh, often had a small dish or a platter to, the, uh, to eat from. So food moved from the large communal serving dish to individual dishes and then was eaten with the fingers. Softer foods were eaten with spoons and the guests could also have a knife to cut their own meat from the joint if there weren't any slave carvers present. Each person could have a relatively small amount of each item on his plate at any one time, and the process of consumption was slow and steady rather than a hurried meal, gobbling down and then moving next and da da da. I think we could learn a lot from that uh, type of um, dinner, I think. The fact is that the meal itself could take many hours to complete. The position of the various items on the table seems to be very important, as is the position of the guest on the couch. We even hear of some less important guests, freedmen or hangers-on, at the lower end of the couch, failing to get the most desirable foods because they could not reach them. Bearing this in mind, a Roman meal simply is not um, meat and two veg. There should be at least four or five individual hors d'oeuvres served in separate bowls with small dishes or plates for each guest to eat off so that they can take from the communal dishes. And this is equally true, as we said for the main course too. And the whole roast meat with its elaborate decoration, would be carved into small pieces by a slave, so that each guest only picks up what he needs and dips the meat into the accompanying sauces served in uh, little bowls. Then we have the mensae secondae, which is the second tables, or what we can call a dessert, which comprises fairly simple items such as fruit, nuts, and sometimes uh, honey cheesecakes. In the book of Apicius, there are some uh, dessert recipes. And this um, has largely been explained by the fact that baked goods tended to be dealt in a separate, literally, form. As we said before, Apicius uh, is a cook's collection of recipes rather than an actual cookbook. And this separation of sweet and savoury doesn't necessarily apply uh, there. How was the the Roman kitchen? How did people cook all these um, different dishes, simple and elaborate ones? We catch a glimpse of the shabbiness of the ancient kitchen and its primitiveness in the writings of many uh, different writers. There was rarely a supply of fresh water. Usually a bucket would have been fetched from a public fountain and the lack of ventilation would have uh, caused a smoky atmosphere. Classical writers such as Marshall tells of a black kitchen. Horace moans about smoke from the kitchen causing to water and Seneca often refers to the city of Rome as if it was a little more than an agglomeration of charcoal stoves. The kitchen fire could, when out of hand, threaten the whole house. Horace describes how, when dining out at Beneventum, the kitchen caught fire, causing guests and slaves to panic in their efforts to extinguish the blaze. centered on the knife and the pestle and mortar. Almost every archaeological site contains fragments of mortars, heavy clay balls with a lip for pouring that often had grit baked in the bottom to facilitate grinding. As food was eaten at the table with fingers and bread, everything was either chopped into manageable chunks or pureed before serving. Spoons were the only pieces of cutlery that seemed to have been used regularly. Their handles which had sharp pointed ends, are commonly thought to have been used uh, for hooking snails out of their shells. On the other hand, virtually raw eggs heated quickly in boiling water were a popular delicacy, and pointed spoon handles may have been used to puncture the shell as well and allow the contents to be sucked out. Two-pronged forks certainly existed, and um, there is some fine examples of that uh, in some archaeological museums, but the use of the table is not confined uh, in the surviving literature. Double-handed blades were used for mincing, and a range of cooking pots and baking trays would have made a similar impression to us as one in a modern kitchen. Of course, the food can be roasted, boiled, fried, cooked uh, on the grill, or craticulum. They had also the double boiler with inside vessel of uh, wicker work, the vatilum or batilum, a chafing dish with coals in the lower pan, cooking in the thermospodium, or hot ashes, which corresponds to our fires cooking, or the method of the clam bake, and the cooking in carta, or paper. The Roman fuels were wood and coal. Perhaps um, all this sounds a bit similar to our um, kitchens and to our cooking, which could lead to an impression that uh, not much changed in the past 2,000 years, but um, really um, the, the use of cleaner and more efficient fuels and devices for us, and also the way of measuring heat more precisely, it's something that um, obviously we can uh, think it's, it's very different from a Roman oven or a Roman kitchen. Talking about ovens, uh, two kinds of ovens are mentioned: the furnus and clibanus. There was um, utensils for cooking meat: uh, the sardago, which is like our frying pan, the cortina or kettle and the Craticulum, like a piece of metal wicked work. Um, there are there are obviously cups like calyx and kyathos, a ladle, a dipper, a cup for vinegar, a small cask, mushroom dishes, uh, pultarius for porridges, flat-shaped dishes for cooking and especially for serving, the patella, lungs and discus, and the mortar for grinding spices and other things, uh, and sponges, obviously, for wiping tables and meats. Strainers for sieving and uh, knives, small knives like coutelous, moulding boards, um, napkins and linen threads for showing in stuffing. From the archaeological site of Pompeii, we have a surviving list of family shopping, which features bread, olive oil, wine and cheese, onions, dates and pear, Uh, but fish is only listed once and there's no mention of meat. And this list uh, was uh, for food uh, for just over a week shopping's worth. Which is kind of interesting to see what people could afford um, to eat regularly. Bread was the main thing, obviously. Everybody had bread and ate bread made from wheat. But also there was barley, which was cheaper and um, generally made into porridge. From kitchens excavated in Pompey, We get that the most recognizable feature is the masonry platform, sometimes edged with a low guard at the top. There were arched openings at the front of the platform allowed for the storage of fuel. Stone supports for the wooden tables used for food preparation have also been discovered. Much of the cooking was carried out on small tripods and grind irons over burning charcoal. Many kitchens were probably unroofed apart from canvas awnings that could be unfurled in bad weather so that the smoke could escape easily. Bronze strainers with holes arranged in ornamental patterns were used to serve wine, Also, sieving was concerned less with catching the lees than the herbs and spices that they were often added to improve or change the flavour of the wine. When the food was ready to serve, there was a variety of dishes to use, large platters and shallow bowls of silver, bronze and pewter, or fine pottery often decorated with incised patterns or designs in relief. From the first century BC, each course was brought into the dining room on a tray, generally made of wood, but sometimes on silver, depending on the wealth and complexity, or otherwise of the meal. Small tables made trays essential even in humble houses. Before this date, the courses were placed on the three-legged tables and carried in into the banqueters. hence the expression first tables for the first course and second tables for the second. A restaurant would no doubt have followed the same pattern of serving as at the private house. As we said, uh, wealthy households owned cooks as slaves. And Martial remarked that a cook must possess the same tastes as his master. Generally, a good cook, if you, if you want to hire one, was expensive. Big households or restaurants uh, or more complex um, living places had meals in the shape of an hourglass by blindfold donkeys and uh, the remains of bakeries have been found at various ancient sites. In Pompeii alone there were something like 30 bakeries. Fuel wasn't cheap so bakers cooked in one large pot loaves uh, sometimes made by their customers sometimes made by the bakers themselves. Just as I've been describing the house kitchens similar were the kitchens of uh, restaurants and places to eat outside because not everyone uh, ate at home obviously, especially in the urban centres, as we said earlier on. There were places in the cities of the Roman Empire where either a full meal or a snack could be eaten. Uh, the fast-food establishments of the day were called Popinai and served fried fish, and ham as well, sausages and other delicacies. So Popinae was the restaurant of the day, it was, um, was the tavern of the day. And as such, they also had a reputation as the haunt of drunks, thieves and prostitutes and lazy slaves. Juvenal describes uh, in passing an all-night popina where depotched insomniacs would free their away the small hours. Uh, this uh, literary evidence comes from an upper-class perspective, however, and um, the greasy restaurants, as Horace called them, were probably enjoyed by a large part of the population. As we've seen, nothing um, um, much changes uh, sometimes. Um, the upper-class is um, ridiculing um the enjoyment of the lower classes. Juvenal made fun also of the old men who still happened to frequent the all-night bars at Rome's harbour town, Ostia, as if they were still youngsters. The Phoenician host, greasy with respectful hair oil, runs to welcome his guest's approach and calls him master, why not king? Here the waitress, running to him with her skirt hitched up, already uncorking a bottle. Send to Ostia for him, Caesar. Look in the big tavern there. You will find him lying alongside some brawler, in among sailors and thieves and runaways, with hangmen and coffin makers, and the sodden priest of Sibeli. His symbols strangely silent. In the tavern all are equally free, all drink from a common cup. The couch is barred to no man, the table is no closer to one than is to another. The philosopher Seneca. Complaints about uh, what he has to listen to just outside his apartment's window. Pancake sellers and the sausage vendor and the confectioner and all the proprietors of restaurants selling their wares with miscellaneous shouts, each in his distinctive accent. Similar to the popina was um, the thermopolium, or hot food place. A well-known thermopolium, a Selina's thermopolium, had an assorbent of amphorae and jugs for serving hot and cold drinks. There were also cozy corners and upper rooms which bear out the suggestion made by certain writers that bars and fast food restaurants were used for purposes other than eating. In Pompeii, at the inn near the corner of Mercury Street, the walls are decorated with paintings depicting people seated around tables with sausages, strings of onions and cheeses hanging from the rafters. Ovid, in his Metamorphosis, writes of ham covered in soot from the fire, hanging in the hovel of a poor elderly couple, while Virgil has a round cheese pierced through the middle with a string and a bunch of dried dill hanging in the hat of his peasant Simulus. Tenant farmers like him had been regarded from the earliest times as the backbone of the Roman state. The distinction between what was and what was not luxurious is vital for our understanding of food in antiquity. The ancient world lived, for the most part, at substance level, as did almost all societies until the modern age. Food shortages were frequent, and doctors didn't find anything strange in recording what poor people ate and suffered during a time of want. Uh, normally the people in the country would be starved uh, after a poor harvest, while city dwellers were cushioned by grain stored in government granaries or in private hands for during the imperial period, the tax collector and landlord extracted the dew from the peasantry with ruthless efficiency. The basic ingredients of any Roman meal seems to be olive oil and wine. That was probably on every corner of the Mediterranean, and it's the cornerstone of uh, the modern Mediterranean de- diet as well. Regional styles existed, certainly, and this took up the native cuisine which existed prior to the Roman conquest and also adapted Roman recipes to locally available ingredients. So, we have examples in Britain and Germany of long hauls in some villas, which attest to the survival of uh, Celtic feasting around uh, meat roasted on a spit. Uh, And in northern Gaul, butter and cream were incorporated to Roman dishes. As we said, there was meat served in all the different fast food uh, places, that meat generally was expensive. One of the main strands of satirical humour in Petronius is the serving of meat at every course in Trimalchius' banquet. For this, would have appeared vulgar even to a wealthy senator. So the the three-course meal, as we said, only in the, all the, all in the first tables they would have a meat course. The appetizers would be all these different little snacks and the desserts would be fruits and nuts and sweets. Um... So yeah, this this the juxtaposition that uh, Petronius is making. We think that pork was the most popular meat in ancient Rome. And uh, from um, records we have um, we have um, like in 301 um, C we have the the emperor Diocletian publishing a decree on maximum prices. He was trying to stop inflation to curb inflation and so from that decree, we have uh, some idea what people were getting paid and how much uh, food stuff costs. So we know, for example, that uh, 12 denarii would buy a pound of pork or venison or the best quality fresh fish, while the same sum could purchase nearly three pounds of beans or barley. A farm labourer could expect to earn 25 denarii as a daily wage, a baker 50 denarii and an interior decorator of 75 denarii. Rome as a massive city, as the capital, must have had um, Hundreds, if not thousands, of bakers and street food sellers and taverns and popinae And um, and the emperor Trajan, in the 2nd century AD, built a huge shopping complex in Rome. On the fifth floor of this were special facilities for selling fish and two channels were built specifically to provide the water in which the fish were kept. One linked to fresh water aqueduct and the other to supply of salt water from Ostia. Ostia was uh, the port town of ancient Rome. At Ostia itself, water tanks and marble slabs have been unearthed from the premises of, of, of fishmongers. so it seems the concentration of wealth in large cities allowed for a thriving uh, fish market. Despite all the similarities of um, the ancient Roman cooking with today's cooking, most of the ancient cooking methods are cumbersome for anyone without an army of uh, kitchen slaves. We have to be clear about that. Everything was made from scratch. There was lots of pounding, a lot of sauces, a lot of fetching waters, making fires, making sure co- the correct temperatures, all these elaborate dishes, different utensils, and so on, and so on, and so on. Basically, there was no shortcuts, no marks and spells and waitress to go and get um, some ready-made uh, meals. The kitchens of um, wealthy households had a solid built-in stove made of cement or, or clay, which uh, called Focus. A Caminus was a stove with a chimney above it. The stove consisted of a square structure between 1.10 metres and uh, 1.30 metres high and about 1.20 metres deep. They varied in length and wood or charcoal stored in a shed were burned on the Focus, on a barbecue-like fashion. Unlike barbecue, however, no grill was placed above the embers. Instead, each pan was placed on the flames on an individual tripod. Grills, called retiacula, were generally no larger than 25 cm square. They had handles and little feet so that they could be placed above the hot coals. The focus was large enough for different kinds of fire, leaking flames, glowing coals and hot ashes. Fierce flames were for searing the meat, which was exposed to the side of the flame and for roasting whole animals and hams on a spit. Again, to the side of the flame, and never above it. Fierce flames heated cold liquids quickly and were necessary for stir-frying, for quickly frying stuff. Many kitchens had an oven called furnus and sometimes called fornax. Some, like the kitchen in the Villa de Misteri in Pompeii, had two such ovens. The oven consisted of a square or dome-shaped hollow construction of brick or stone with a flat floor, often made of granite, sometimes lava. It was filled with dry twigs, then lit. When the fire was spent, the glowing embers were swept aside. The first heat of the glowing oven was suitable for baking unleavened or thin breads. So then, after them, the large round loaves go in. Then, uh, when that's finished, meat dishes go in and the door is closed. After an hour or so, these are removed, but the oven is still hot, so finer pastures follow, and then dishes that require the least heat. From Pompeii, we have um, a wealthy woman's and entrepreneur's um, called Julia Felix, a restaurant which had a grab-and-go place and the eat-in area. This had tables and upright benches, perhaps with cushions. And next to it, we have a kitchen with um, all the above utensils and elements and and stoves. Now, I wanted to tell you some um, ancient um, fast food to grab-and-go. Some recipes and some dishes that are suitable for these um, thermopolia or uh, fast food uh, joints and that would make a a delicious um, starter for your courses. One of these is smoked fish in vine leaves, Threon tarichus, with smoked fish seasoned with fish sauce and cheese and wrapped in um, fig leaf and baked. Of course, another one is ordinary Threon, which again, stuffed um, fig leaf, apparently makes the most delicious food according to Didimus, an ancient commentator from one of Aristophanes' uh, comedies. Of course, this recipe is for um, stuffed, um, for stuffed leaves. It's uh, the precursor of uh, the modern Greek uh, and Turkish dolmades, and um, they did use fig leaves, not vine leaves. To be honest, I think it's difficult to find fresh, young, tender um, fig leaves. But if you can, try it, because I think I think it has a very different taste. Um, so the ordinary Threon was made um, with pig or kid lard, flour, milk and the yolk of an egg to bind it. Of course you could use um, fig leaves to wrap the mixture and cook it in there and then basically use it as a flavouring for the filling so don't eat the the wrapped leaf. Another dish would be pork in sweet wine and a fig sauce. So if you get about a a kilo of pork uh, cut into small pieces, uh, fry them in a casserole with a little olive oil until it's brown. Uh, get a couple of teaspoons of coriander seeds, toast them, and then grind them. Toast the pork in salt, white wine vinegar, and coriander. Chop the figs, uh, like take five dried figs, chop them and boil them in a couple of glasses of water for five minutes. Strain the resulting fig stock and reserve. The dried figs after that can be a bit gritty, so discard them. Add the wine, like a, like a, a liter of sweet wine, oregano, some more white wine vinegar, like three tablespoons, And the fig stock to the pork cook the casserole for an hour uh, or an hour and a half in a preheated oven around um, 180 degrees celsius and then just before you serve sprinkle some chopped parsley and serve with bread or pearl barley to accompany the dish another recipe would be served with uh, breads or flatbreads would be the herb puree with pine kernels like a precursor to the modern pesto but not with basil. The ancient Romans didn't use basil for food, if used mostly found in medicine. So yeah, get a 100 grams of pine kernels, or hazelnuts for that matter, um, like a, two or three big handfuls of uh, fresh parsley, uh, 80 milliliters of olive oil, 80 milliliters of red wine vinegar, a um, couple of teaspoons of ground black pepper, 125 uh, grams of uh, some uh, tangy, crumbly cheese, um, like feta or ricotta salata or pecorino or romano, perhaps a handful of fresh coriander leaves if you like them, a few mint leaves, a sprig of savory or thyme, and some sea salt. And basically, yeah, uh, grind all that together. Probably, most likely nowadays you'll use a food processor, not by hand. And um, yeah, and then you have your uh, herb puree to serve with um, hot crusty bread. And for the Patreon backers only, I've got an exclusive recipe for Curcubitas uh, more Alexandrino or uh, an Alexandrian bottle gourd uh, or um, squash uh, recipe, which is the calabash, since um, the ancient Romans didn't have any pumpkins and squashes. This came from Americas. So the recipe from Apicius goes like this. Enjoy. And that's it. That's um, the episode for today. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy podcast. See you soon for another archaeogastronomical adventure. Bye!